If you've got your Bibles, do this. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. That's where we'll be. We started our series in this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus a couple of weeks ago. And I want to pick up with the last um, half of chapter 1 this morning, and I'll I'll open it, um, get us thinking about the the passage this way, um, and it with a question. And the question is this, what do you get a person that has everything? What do you get someone that has everything? You know, as you get older, you, you realize if you, you know, you're trying to buy something for your spouse or something for your adult children, I mean, what do you get someone who has everything they could get for themselves? I mean, it, you know, what do you get someone? Who has everything? Well, I was thinking about it, and, I, and I, I think the answer to that question, what do you get someone who has everything? The answer is somehow helping them get a deep and abiding appreciation of everything they already have. An understanding of all that they have. An intimate knowledge of what they truly have. That's what Paul's doing this morning. But Paul is praying for these believers. He's praying for this church in Ephesus. He's praying for these Christians. He's he's praying for really all Christians that would come after this and, and read these words. And he wants us to truly know what it is that we already have. I think too many believers will go through life and we have no idea what we have as believers. We have no idea um, experientially what it is that God has done. And on top of that, what Paul's going to do is he's going to put on a clinic this morning of, regarding prayer. And so, I want us to pay attention to that and hope that, you know, a, a desire is kindled in us for a growing and, and deepening prayer life. A few children's prayers for you. This is um, Teresa. She's age eight from Milwaukee. Dear God, I know you love me, but I wish you'd give me an A on my report card so I could be sure. Love, Teresa. D- dear Pastor, could you say a special prayer for my Aunt Beatrice? She's been looking for a husband for 12 years and still hasn't found one. Yours sincerely, Debbie, age 9. Jackie in Chicago, age 9. Dear Pastor, we say grace every night before we eat dinner, even when we have leftovers from the night before. This is Julie. Dear Pastor, I say my prayer before I eat my supper, but my mother still makes me finish my spinach and drink all my milk. Here's Justin in Westport, age nine. Dear Pastor, thanks for your sermon on Sunday. I'll write more when my mother explains to me what you said. (laughs) Spurgeon said, too many men pray like little boys who knock at doors and then run away. I'd rather teach one man to pray than ten men 
to preach. I want us to be drawn this morning, encouraged and challenged, you know, stirred up to be people who pray. Because I want you to see the, the height and the depth of which Paul prays for us this morning. Now, to remind you what we looked at last week. Remember, last week was this grand praise, this praise for God, all that God has done in, in eternity past and in history past and in our personal pasts. And he said, the Father chose you before the foundations of the world, and, and uh, the Son came into history and purchased you uh, with his death on the cross, and that the Spirit has sealed you in bringing the gospel to you. And now he's going to move into prayer. And this passage is going to break down into three parts, and then we're going to read it. The first two verses, 15 and 16, of chapter 1, Paul's going to give thanks for their faith and love. The second section is 17 to 19. Paul's going to pray for more than their eyes can see. And then the last section, 20 to 23, Paul's going to describe the power that is at work in their lives. He's going to give thanks for their faith and love. He's going to pray for more than their eyes can see, and he's going to describe the power that's at work in their lives. Listen to how Paul writes this, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might? that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in, all the, heaven, in the heavenly places, far above, above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us this morning to, to understand what you have uh, inspired and um, revealed to Paul, what you've preserved through these centuries. Father, that the, the power of your word would have its effect in our lives this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, first I want you to see, verses 15 and 16, that Paul gives thanks for their faith and love. Because I've heard, he says, of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. He's just given his readers this doctrinal treatise. 
this reminder of all these things that God has done. And then he prays for this reason. And the reason is grounded in this truth that underlies all that he has said up to this point. In other words, since, since all of these things are true about you, believer, since all of this is true, and you believe it by faith, I now want to say a few things. Notice the contrast that he makes. The, the first part of the chapter is this what well, we said it was a eulogy. It was a praise to the greatness of God and His sovereignty. The second half, he's praying for the saints. It's this reminder that when we're, we're confronted with or we're reminded of or we're brought face to face with the sovereignty of God, our response is not, well, God's sovereign. He seems like He's planned everything before the foundations of the world. I Guess we're just here to sit back and watch everything unfold. And I would say that is never the response of Scripture when we're confronted with the sovereignty of God. We're always confronted with prayer. That we're to pray to God. We're to lean into that. John chapter 17, Jesus, on the night that he is betrayed, he goes uh, and and he prays to God, and he prays to God about all of the things that Jesus already knew was going to take place. He prays for all of his friends. He prays for all of the believers that would come after those friends. That Jesus goes to the Father who is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign for that matter. Knowing all things from beginning to end. And yet is drawn to pray about those to seek God, to ask God. It's a good reminder for us that that somehow in the mystery of God's sovereignty, He has ordained our prayer to Him to be the means by which He accomplishes what it is that He's ordained. That He draws us in. You know, We're invited into the throne room to come and to address the creator of all things with what feels like sometimes our our puny, finite, such limited, you know, apologetic prayer. Oh, God, I know you know everything from beginning to end, and I only know this little bitty part. And yet my heart's weighed down by it and it's burdened by it. And so I pray. It's no different than you would would be with your children who are young and you already know what they're going to ask when they show up and you already know the answer, but you would never want to thwart the opportunity for a relationship when they come in to sit in your lap or play on the floor in front of you or cry and beg, or you would never, as your child walked in the door, go, stop, I already know what you want. You can turn around, it has been granted. Or denied, or, or whatever. You'd never do that. God bids us to come to Him. Well, the other thing to notice, their faith in Him, I think that should lead us always to prayer. And our love towards 
the saints. He's heard of it. It's famous. Their love, their faith in the Lord Jesus, their love towards each other. See, when this doctrine, when this truth of what God has done gets hold of us, it overflows in our love for one another. And you may be here and say, we just went through 1 John. We talked about a bunch of love. Are we done with that yet? No. It's all over. God's truth translates into our love for one another. And this is, this is what defines us as the church. So God's love for the believer, the believer's love for one another. In fact, you get to the end of the prayer, and Pope Paul says, listen, the context of all these things I'm praying are actually the church, that, 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 that individually you would experience this alongside a, a church body, that our Christianity, our life in Christ, our belief and our faith has the context of the church, that we are with one another. No one is a believer all on their own. We're saved out of isolation from God and out of the, the loneliness and desperation and, and wilderness of our sin. And, and as, as Christ saves us and, and reconciles us to God, He also sets us in this context called the church, the body of Christ, that we are now not only reconciled to God, but reconciled to one another. We're connected to each other. So that's what we should be known for should be famous for it. Well, I, I, let's look. Paul prays because of, because of their faith and their love, but I, but I want you to see what he prays for. In 17 to 19, he prays for more than their eyes can see. Now, now I, want you to, I want you to hear these words. I want you to I want you to be drawn into what Paul's saying. He's going to use language. He's, he's piling language on here. Let me read it again, verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And, and really think about it this way. What he's praying is that we'd have spiritual wisdom, spiritual revelation. That it'd be spiritual in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you know. And then He's going to... So that the hope to which He's called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might? This spiritual wisdom and revelation, think about it this way. Wisdom, as you, as you look at it through Scripture, it's, it's truth that's rightly applied. It's, it's, it's the truth of God's Word, but it's not only the truth of God. It's the truth of God's Word rightly applied. See, there's this fascinating thing. You go back to Job's friends. You know, if you went studied the book of Job, and you looked at the friends, and the, and the friends, you know, the high moment is they're sitting silent with Job, and then once they open their mouth, everything kind of goes downhill. But when you look at what they say, some of the things that they say are actually true. 
they're just so grossly and wrongly applied that they cease to be wisdom. It's truth wrongly applied. Now listen, here's another word for truth wrongly applied. Facebook. I, I, I just want to tell you, I think there's very little wisdom to be found. Probably lots of truth and lots of not truth, by the way. But the, but the problem today, listen, we have a, we, I think it's an epidemic in the church that we take truth and we wrongly apply it all over the place. And I would just tell you, we, what, what, what Paul prays for us, a mark of a, of a growing and deepening life that, that is um, that the, your, your, your intimacy with God increases, you're, you're going to become more wise, you, you, spiritually wise. You're going to be able to take the truth and know how to rightly apply that truth. And if you don't, then to just be silent. There's so much truth wrongly applied all over the place. Paul prays we wouldn't be that way. Praise for wisdom, praise for revelation. Revelation is, is that which was hidden that only God can reveal. It's that which was hidden that all human investigation, no matter how much, we couldn't, we couldn't come up with that. We couldn't see that. All spiritual wisdom and revelation, that we would see what it is that God has revealed, that God would unveil those things. And the context of that is His Word in the midst of Believers, his word in the midst of the church. Notice he's called the father of glory or the glorious father. The father to whom all glory belongs. And that we would, we would know him. See, Paul's prayer is this, that you... you you know these things, the things that you've come to believe. You've been made aware of these tremendous doctrinal truths. You've been overwhelmed at some point in your life of the grace of God through his son Jesus. And he's like, now I want you to take that to the next level. I want you to move beyond the truth of doctrine. Don't leave it behind. You're bringing it with you. But there's more. There's a real, there's an intimate, there's an abiding knowledge of God. In other words, I'm praying you'll experience this truth in your life. You'll experience what you have already reasoned in your head. And the prayer is very specific. He's praying for these huge things. He's praying that these things that cause me to fall to my knees this week as I'm studying it. See, I want to know God better. I want to know him intimately, more intimately. I want to know him in the reality of my life. I want to move beyond what I, what I read, what I ascend to in my head, and experience and know intimately the, the overwhelming beauty of his glory. Let me, let me ask you, as we, as we 
think seriously about our Christian lives this morning. If, if, if you decide this morning to no longer settle for mere knowledge about God, but, but endeavor to know Him, because knowing Him and knowing about Him, that, that's two different things. I've only had two NFL jerseys in my whole life. One when I was a child. It was a Dallas Cowboy jersey, and it was number 12. And if you grew up in the 70s and 80s and you didn't have that jersey, shame on you. You can repent of that this morning. But, man, I would play in the backyard I would pretend I was Roger Staubach. I knew all of his stats. I had a big old book, you know, of the Dallas Cowboys had all their stats. It was just, a, you know, a little dorky, nerdy kid that, you know. The other jersey, NFL jersey I've had in my life, was Dallas Cowboy jersey. Number nine, Tony Romo, who I can sit and go to coffee with you and argue the finer points of why he's the most underrated quarterback. Cowboys have ever had. That if he'd have played behind the line that Troy Aikman played behind, Tony Romo would go down in the history books as, as the best quarterback that ever played for the Cowboys. I realize some of you have already turned me off. And... <laughs> but I am a fan. I think he's a great guy. I like him. I, I, you know, all, all these things. I know all these things about him. And um, a little over a year ago, he was actually in Tyler playing at a golf tournament, pro-am golf tournament deal. My friend Clark Crawford and I went out, and we, you know, we uh, found out when he was teeing off, and we went out there, and we followed him around for the first, you know, nine holes that he played. And th I was, I was from me to Johnny Russell, to Tony Romo. Watched him swing the golf club. Everything in me wanted to go, Tony. me. Clark was like, you can't wear the jersey. You don't, you cannot wear the, the jersey out there. I was like, all right. I have pictures on my iPhone of him. But let me tell you something. If I got in the car this afternoon and I drove to Tony's house, and I may or may not know where that is, but if I drove to Tony's house and went and knocked on the door, that dude ain't letting me in. See, I think too much of, of the church, too much of what we call the church, too much of what we've called Christianity is, you know, just a bunch of people that know a whole lot of things. We know a bunch of Bible knowledge. We know all the things. We know all Jesus' stats. You know, we got pictures of him. We talk about him. We're fans of him. But what Paul's praying is that we'd, we'd move past that. We'd move... We'd move into this abiding, intimate knowledge of who he is. Now, now, look at how he talks about it. In verses 18 and 19, the first thing he says, the, the, these three things, the first one, <clears throat> that you'd have the eyes of your heart enlightened. It means to, to shine or, or give light. It, it it describes very simply 
is what the, the Greek grammar says. An event completed in the past that has results in the present time. It's the perfect tense. It's completed in the past. The results of that are now here in the present. So here's what Paul is saying. I want you to track with me. You have already been enlightened. That the Holy Spirit has helped you believe the truth of Christ. It has helped open your eyes. Paul is praying that beyond this knowledge of Christ, you would come to know it intimately and perfectly, personally. Listen, since, since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, I'm praying that at the very core of your being, the very center of your life, you'll understand what you already possess and that you'll live like it. You already have these things. Now, Paul wants you to grow in a deep and abiding appreciation and intimacy of it. And the three things he's talking about there, the second part of, of verse 18, the, the hope, what is the hope to which he's called you? The hope of your past calling, the riches of your future inheritance, and the incomparability of his present power, the hope of his past our hope is not in what God might do for us. Our hope as believers is in what God has already done and is still doing in us through his son, Jesus Christ. We can have a real confidence in what God has already done and the fact that it cannot be undone. The hope of our calling the last part of, of, of verse 18, that we'd know what the riches of his glorious inheritance is in the saints. Here's what you need to know about that. You, there is nothing that we lack. Not only do we have an inheritance, we are an inheritance a glorious inheritance. If you were to go to Ephesus today and you went and joined an archaeological dig, or you went over there on a study trip, you, what you'd see is you'd see a place. It was, it's remarkable. It's, it's splendid. It had great wealth. Paul is writing to a city that had phenomenal wealth wealth. I mean, if in 2,000 years the earth tarries and there are some archaeologists digging up places in America, they would see that we were extremely wealthy. That they'd see we had an extremely splendid life. But let me tell you, what we see around us today, what we take for granted is in no way can it compare what we will enjoy for eternity. The truth of this passage is that at a spiritual letter level, we can already begin enjoying that there is nothing that we lack. And not only do we have an inheritance, we are, like I said, this glorious inheritance. And the reason is, Paul says, 
You are an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. You've been given, he says in Romans chapter 8, a spirit of adoption. You're a son of God. You're his child. You're his heir. There's nothing you gain on earth that would ever compare to what you will enjoy for eternity. And the truth of this passage is that you can enjoy that. Now, Paul Paul's writing, you, you could go to Ephesus, you could see all these things. You can see up on the hill probably where the, the hill that, that, that the temple of, to Artemis was, the, the, one of the seven wonders of the world. You, you can go to the theater at the far end of town that's there in the seaport, or what was the seaport? You can stand in that theater. You can open your Bible to Acts chapter 19. You can read about the riot uh, that the, the gospel created when Paul preached there and people got saved and, 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 it, and it killed the economy and people stopped buying the statues and the souvenirs and the whole city. They come to that theater. And you can stand there where 2,000 years ago the people of Ephesus stood and cried at the top of their lungs, great is Artemis of, Ephesus, of the Ephesians. You see the library, the housing, but, but none of those things are my favorite spot. I'll tell you actually my favorite spot on the tour. If you walk out of the theater and you walk towards what would have been the seaport. In fact, if you keep going, you run into the sea. But the sea came up further back in Paul's day. But you walk out of the, out of the theater and you can walk towards the seaport. And you go about 300 yards or so, maybe 500 yards. And you can stand there and you can look to the right. And what you see is what would have been the Agora in Ephesus, is the marketplace, if you will. It's where people did business, you know, they bought groceries, they saw friends, the, it was the heart of the city. It's not really dug up yet, although it likely will be, but you can tell, you can tell right where it is when you stand there. And, and I like to stop there and I explain the Agora and I tell a little bit of its history. And then I also tell about a custom that took place in the ancient Roman world. There was this practice. And we know that it was a practice that was prominent in Ephesus. And what would happen is a wife would go into labor. And she would be attended by midwives. And uh, then the child would be born. And then before the mother would see the child, often, the, the midwife, she would summon the husband, and he would come in and he would inspect the child. And if the man was hoping for a son and found that she was a daughter, or if there was anything visibly wrong with the child, the father could instruct the midwife to dispose of the child. They called it exposure. It was a horrible practice, but it was fairly common. So sometimes the midwives, they would take the child up into the hills and they would leave it to die and be taken care of by animals. 
often, though. They would take a child to the Agora very early in the morning, before dawn, and they would leave the child there exposed. And what would happen is slave traders would come through, and they'd come through before sunrise, and they'd often take these babies, they would raise them, only later to be sold as slaves. And you can imagine what a horror that would have been, especially for girls. So I like to stand there in Ephesus, right there where the Agora was, and tell about that practice of exposure, and then open to Galatians chapter 4 and listen to what it says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because your sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Verse 5 of Galatians 4 says, To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. Here's something amazing. The Greek word redeem to redeem there. The word is ex agorizo. The prefix ex means to be taken out of or, or could mean to be rescued from. Agoriso is the word, the Greek word for agora. Rescued out of the agora. Destined for slavery or worse and, and adopted as a son, made an heir. And there's nothing that we lack. We've been rescued from the slavery of sin and the slavery of the enemy, the slavery you were born into, you've been rescued from that. You've been made a son. You have an in daughter. You have an inheritance, a glorious inheritance. Born into the darkness of this world, destined for slavery to sin, you have been redeemed. And Paul says, I hope you know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And the last thing he says there in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? In fact, Paul's going to write verse 19, and I feel like he gets so overwhelmed with that, he begins to describe in verse 20 and 21 and 22 and 23 what that power actually is and what it looks like. But Paul's not praying here for God's power to be given to believers. He's praying that we would become aware of the power that is already working in us and toward us through Christ. That we become intimately familiar with it. He piles these words on power and working 
great and might and immeasurable and greatness. Paul's not praying for what they don't have because in Christ we have everything. He prays He prays that, that, that what they have in God, that they would grow in their appreciation of, their, their, their abiding intimacy of. You remember the Super Bowl commercial? Uh, the FedEx Super Bowl commercial a couple of years ago that ran and it spoofed the movie Castaway. You know, Tom Hanks, he's the FedEx worker and he, um, you know, he's stranded on the island and he, and he, you know, he opened a bunch of the boxes to see what there was, but he kept the one box that was unopened, you know, to kind of give him hope, you know, so he still had something to do. He still had this box to deliver. Well, they spoofed the, the deal on a Super Bowl commercial and you know, there he is, and he shows up. He's looking disheveled, and the employee goes to the door of a suburban home. He's, you know, he's already been rescued, goes back, he's got the package. Lady opens the door. He explains, you know, survived five years on the desert island. During that time, he kept the package, wanted to deliver it to her. She gives a simple thank you. But he's curious. He wants to know what's in the package. And he says, if I may ask, What's in the package after all? She opens it up, shows him the contents. Oh, nothing really, just a satellite telephone, global positioning device, compass, water purifier, some seeds. See, like the contents of the package, the, the resources for growth and strength are available for every believer who takes advantage of them, that presses into you already. Notice the power, this power. He is the power displayed in Christ in raising him from the dead. The raising Jesus from the dead power of God is at work in you. The seating him in the heavenlies power, the, the above everything, the, the nothing's greater than Christ. He's, he's the all authoritative. He is all in all. Everything is subjected under his feet. That power is at work in your life. And that he gave Christ to the church as the head. He's the head of the church. That he, we're his body. So connected. Remember putting your face in those headless frames when you were a little kid? You know, they're all painted up like a muscle man or a clown or something. You stick your face through the, through the hole. Somebody takes your picture. And it's funny, the funny thing is, is because the, the, the body doesn't end up matching the face. Unfortunately, I think too often that's the way the church can look. You know, we can look distorted. We, the face of Jesus doesn't match the body. The head of Jesus doesn't match this body. Because we're not in awe like Paul prays that would, would be. So what are you supposed to do? 
I got a couple of minutes, I'll tell you. Here's some, some things. Let me offer these things. See, I think too many, we talk about spiritual growth, growing in Christ. We think, okay, this is something, one of two ways. This is something I have to go out and I have to get. Or we think, well, there'll be a, there'll be a time for that. We'll just do that later in life. I, let me say this. What I, what I want you to realize from what Paul prays this morning is that it's something you already have. You already have this. You already have all that Paul has prayed about. The eyes of your heart have been enlightened. You have this hope to which he's called you. You, 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 you are in, you're the, you're the uh, uh, inheritor of all the riches of his glory. It's something you already have. It's just something that needs to be invested in your life. Listen, you, I don't know that you'll grow. I, 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 think, I don't know that you'll move from all these things I know about Jesus to knowing Him. Like Paul prays. If, if there's not some investment plan that you have for your spiritual life, I think most people don't have a strategy, no game plan. Most people invest more care in their teeth than in the care of their soul. Spend more time brushing your teeth than you do spending time in God's Word. Now listen, I'm, I am not suggesting you forego brushing your teeth. That's important, right? But the care for your soul, your spiritual life, I would say that's more important. Maybe it's time to embark on the study of, the, of a book of the Bible. That may be a topic in God's Word. To doing it with somebody else. Listen, you can take a class online. I just looked at it this week. You can go to Dallas Seminary. So, just Dallas Seminary online courses free. You could, something like that. Or, or any, your seminary of choice. Most seminaries, free online classes. I looked, just looked it up. I looked it up Friday. Here, here's what you could take. There's a class on Thessalonians, five-session course taught by the DTS president and professor of Bible exposition, Dr. Mark Young. Free. There's a class, The Names and Attributes of God, a five-session course taught by Dr. Scott Harrell. Dr. Harrell's been here to Bethel. There's a class on 1 Corinthians, seven-week course taught by Dr. Constable. There's a five-week course on James taught by the late Dr. Stanley Toussaint. It's just to name a few. You could take something on Daniel or Understanding God's Covenants or Acts or Hebrews or Old Testament prophets or the life of Christ. You can invest some of the time that you have into knowing more intimately whose you are. It's an incredible wealth of resources to aid you in your deepening and growing Christian 
life. Listen, you can come up here on Tuesday nights, Bethel Theological Studies. Just started last week, New Testament um, uh, survey. Survey of the New Testament. It's not too late. You can come jump in. It's a Wednesday night study on Genesis. It's not too late. You can just ju- come jump in. There's men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies, all this designed to help you gain a deeper and, and, and more abiding appreciation of everything you have, an understanding of all you have, all you are in Christ, an intimate knowledge of the spiritual blessings given to you by God. What's your strategy this year? How are you planning to grow? Paul's praying that you come to this greater realization of all that God has done. What's your plan to do that? If you would, would you, would you bow with me? Let's, let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd, you'd help us this morning. Draw us to your son. Draw us to your to the hope of our calling. Father, we begin to see with eyes that are enlightened because of what you've done. Father, we'd we'd know the riches of our eternal inheritance. We'd, We'd begin to live in those now. Father, we'd We'd move from what we know about you in our heads to, Father, knowing you intimately, experientially, walking with you, growing in you. Father, we'd live out the reality that we are adopted and heirs and What it means that we're in Christ with one another. And so, Father, draw us to you and and stir us with a desire to step in to what you have done, what you are doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.